Father, we are here this morning as recipients of the greatest news ever, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have sung about these things. We have acted them out as we've remembered the gospel through the Lord's table. And now, Father, we have the privilege of opening your word and considering that good news once again. Father, it likely is the case that many of us are struggling this morning in various ways and tempted even to find solace, even to find saving in things outside of the Lord Jesus. We pray that as we study your word, you would remind us, convince us all the more, grant us to love the truth that Jesus is the real thing. He's the real thing upon which all pseudo-saviors would fashion themselves. And Father, having been convinced of this once again, we pray that we would cling to him by your spirit. Of course, we need your help in all these things, and so we pray that your spirit would minister to us in these ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. As you're finding your place there, if you would, let's stand together and... I'll read the, the first six verses of this chapter. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. You may be seated. The greatest artist you've likely never heard of is a man named Han van Meegeren. Han van Meegeren. He was highly talented. He was a Dutch painter who was educated in the early 20th century. So, so about 100 years ago, he was in his heyday. He had incredible technical skill, but the art critics of his day said that he lacked originality. 
And for that reason, he never gained much of a following under his own name. And so he was moved to seek a kind of revenge on the art world. And in, in an ironic display of, of both his technical skill and his lack of originality, he set out to create and sell a brilliant forgery of an actual old master named Johannes Vermeer. So, so what we have here, just keep these names straight, okay? Because it's, it's not John Smith, right? Han van Meegeren, the forger. Johannes Vermeer, the, the actual old master. Okay, you got that? Van Meegeren, forger. Vermeer, the actual master that, he's, that van Meegeren is copying, okay? In 1937, van Meegeren painted what he was able to pass off as a new Vermeer, a previously unfound Vermeer. And the work was so amazing that this forgery, Van Meegeren's forgery of Vermeer, was, was upheld by critics as the masterpiece of Johannes Vermeer. And Van Meegeren's chicanery was so successful that he just continued painting new Vermeers and selling them and building up for himself a fortune of approximately $60 million. Again, this is, this is the 30s and 40s of the, of the last century. It was back when $60 million was a lot of money. Now, th this is how Van Meegeren was exposed. In the aftermath of World War II, Van Meegeren was accused of treason for selling one of these Vermeers to the Nazi Hermann Goering. And so he had to confess that he had not actually sold a priceless Vermeer to Goering, but rather a worthless Van Meegeren. So just as, just as the art world of the, of the World War II era was duped by a set of copies, so also many lost souls today are duped by pseudo-saviors. We've, we've talked about this many times. Man's biggest problem is that having descended from Adam, he's conceived separated from God in sin. And that's, that's a problem because man exists, he was created to be with God, to know God, to worship God, to image God. And so, separated from God, man can't do, can't be in accordance with his design. And, and we all feel this implicitly in all of life. We, we are malfunctioning. We are broken because of our separation from God in, in our sin. There are signs of it everywhere, if only in the per persistent discontent of our hearts. Additionally, our, our rebellion makes us liable to eternal destruction under the wrath of God. So we, we need a solution to this greatest of all problems, our separation from God. And so in our sin, we devise pseudo-saviors, fake solutions to, to address our malfunctioning in sin. But because they aren't the real thing, they don't provide the value that we are seeking. That is, they, they don't actually save and yet the, the majority of people around us, perhaps some even among us this morning, invest their lives in copies 
in shadows rather than clinging to the original, the substance. And while the cost of embracing a pseudo Vermeer was just a huge, huge pile of money, embracing a pseudo Savior will cost you everything. The author of Hebrews is making the case here that Jesus is the real thing. He's the only real thing, the only real Savior. And he, he, he gets us to the point of understanding that by first of all teaching that in Christ we have a sitting minister in the true tent. We have a sitting minister in the true tent. Look, look with me again, beginning of verse 1, just, just the first part of verse 1. He writes, now the point in what we're saying is this. There's really no clearer way for the author to say, look, this is what I've been getting at the whole time that I've been writing up to this point. And so this passage is, is marked by that statement, and it comes right in the middle of the book. And, and so we might think of it as a hinge passage in the book. It is what, it's what connects the beginning of the book to the end of the book, and it very simply presents Jesus as the real thing, the real thing upon which all the copies were based. So he says the main point in the things that which we've said is this, we have such a high priest. Now what kind of high priest is he talking about? It's the kind of high priest that he mentioned at the end of chapter 7. Look back at chapter 7, just jump back a little bit. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 26, he wrote, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Same words as 8.1. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests. And again, he's talking about the Levitical high priests of the Old Covenant. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, at 726 and following, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And now here in 8.1 he's saying, we actually do. We do have such a high priest. We have in Christ the solution to our biggest problem. And that's going to become clear why He's the, the right solution as, as we move on. So let's, let's continue in, in chapter 8. He is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so if, if we've got, if, if we'd been sitting down and reading Hebrews all in one sitting, our minds would be called back to, to all of these passages from the Old Testament that the author has brought into his letter. For example, Psalm 2 in chapter 1, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And then Psalm 8 in chapter 2, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then Psalm 110 in chapters 1 and 5 and 7, you'll remember likely that Psalm 110.1 tells us, or reads, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the author of Hebrews, connecting all of these Old Testament dots for us, has shown us that Jesus is the promised heir of David, which makes him the culmination of all God's promises. So let's continue now, verse 2. 
a minister in the holy places. Minister in the holy places. When, when I was younger, the word minister evoked in my mind a picture of an unpaid youth volunteer. Okay? Because I had a, I had a youth pastor who hated being called a youth minister. He wanted to be called a youth pastor. And so that initially moved me to think of a minister as something lower than a pastor. Not equal with a pastor, but lower. Well, that's not true at all. And this word for minister is a word that's used almost exclusively for the ministry of a priest in the tabernacle. It's a word that points to the highest of ministries, service in and around the very presence of God. And Jesus is such a minister. And where is He that that kind of a minister? Let's continue on. He's that kind of a minister in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. There's so much about this that would be mind-blowing for an ancient Jew, particularly one that had not been introduced to the things of Christ but, but any Jew would be thinking, well, this is outstanding. So outstanding, it's almost unbelievable that there's another tent. And by tent, he simply means the tabernacle, that meeting place with God from, from the Old Testament. And this likely would not have occurred to them that there's another tent, even though the author of Hebrews finds evidence for it in the Old Testament, and we, we'll get to that later. But the language is striking. There's another tent. And it's the real one. It's the true tent made by God and not by man. Now that language implies something about the earthly tent. The one that, that a, a Jew was, cons- what, what was moved to think of as the tent, what they think of as the tent is actually not the real one. He's going to get into that more explicitly later in the passage. But where Jesus ministers is the true tabernacle and implied is that where the Levitical priests ministered was something less than the true tent. Now, with this language of the true tent, he indicates then that the throne room of heaven where Jesus sits, the throne room of heaven, is itself a tabernacle. So, what he has said about Jesus then is all the more amazing because he writes that Jesus is a high priest who sits in the true tent. And again, for the Jew, the idea, the, the idea of a priest who sits, especially one who sits in the Holy of Holies, this is a striking picture to say the least. Nobody sits in the tabernacle. And, and, and especially nobody sits in the Holy of Holies. You know, there was not a lazy boy right next to the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where the high priest would, would just kick back for a while on the Day of Atonement. No, the, the, the high priest, he gets in and gets out. We, we saw this when we studied Leviticus. The Holy of Holies is, this is a dangerous place to be for a sinner. The, the construction of the tabernacle in the Old Testament was actually designed to allow people to be near to God without being killed by God. Because in their sin, the presence of His holiness, this is a dangerous place to be. Because God's holiness calls Him to punish sin. And so the, the, the high priest, he would go into that Holy of Holies just once a year. But first he had to carry in incense. And in, incense throughout Scripture is described using the language of 
a, a pleasing or a soothing aroma. And so this incense was, 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 was like a, a, a pleasing aroma that covered the stench of the priest's own sin long enough for him to make a blood offering for himself and then the people. All that is to say that the tent, and in particular the Holy of Holies, this is not a place where the priest would just hang out. It is lethally dangerous to be in there. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us, Jesus sits in there. He sits at the right hand of the throne in the Holy of Holies. And and not, not the earthly one made by human hands, but rather the true tent made by God, the true tabernacle where the actual eternal throne of our holy God is. Why He sits is going to be made explicit in a later passage. But that He is able to remain in there recalls for us that Jesus is not a sinner, which the author has pointed out to us numerous times. He's not a sinner. There's there's no danger to Jesus sitting in the Holy of Holies because He's the sinless reigning Son of God. The point of all this is to say that, that, that we currently, we have a king priest who ministers from a seated position in the very throne room of God. We have the ultimate man on the inside. We have the real thing. We have a minister sitting in the true tent. The second thing that the author wants to point out to us is that this This minister sitting in the true tent, he has made the necessary offering. He has made the necessary offering. Look with me at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. A minister is a That's a title that carries its function in the word itself. In fact, we've got verse 2, the word minister. That refers to the person. That's that's what Jesus is. The functional form of the same word, ministry, is found in verse 6. And that's what Jesus does. A minister ministers. What exactly is the ministry of a priest? Well, a priest offers gifts and sacrifices, he tells us here. The Levitical... uh, Priests we found in the book of, of Leviticus outlined these, these, these offerings for us. We, we, we don't go through all of them, or we won't go through all of them, but, but you'll recall that a sacrifice in particular atones for sin. That is, it, it satisfies the wrath of God so that man can be in God's presence. And it, it pictures reconciliation with God. Man can then be forgiven and enjoy God. The other word that he uses here next to sacrifices is gifts. And these gifts express the state of the relationship that has been brought about by these atoning sacrifices. So atoning sacrifices allow man to draw near to God. Gifts express the state of that blessed arrangement of reconciliation. They they express man's desire for God, his thanksgiving to God. His fellowship with God. And and in that arrangement, you can see both man's biggest problem and a picture of the solution. What man desperately needs is fellowship with God 
But to get there, man has to be reconciled to God through atonement. And so by offering sacrifices and gifts, a priest is somebody who facilitates fellowship with God on behalf of others, on behalf of the people. A priest who doesn't do that just isn't a priest. Because Jesus is a priest, it was necessary for Him to offer something. Chapter 7 told us what that something was, rather who it was. Jesus offered Himself. Jesus submitted to the Father's plan that He would be crucified in our place. That by His suffering and death, the wrath of God owed to us would be satisfied, satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. And that Jesus sits in the real tent even now. It says numerous things, among which is that when Jesus died, He didn't stay dead, but rather He he rose again, proving the sufficiency of His sacrifice for us and proving His ability to give life to all that He chooses. And having risen from the dead, He ascended to the right hand of the Father where He sits even now as the author has told us. His current position proves that He's done the work of a priest. He made the necessary offering so that we might be reconciled to God and enjoy God. Now, we've talked just a moment ago about why Jesus is able to be in the holy places. He's able to be there because He's sinless and He's completed the work that He was, he was tasked with. But, but, but remember that, that the, the author has repeatedly called us to draw near. And, and what he means is, he, he, he's calling us to enter the holy places. But remember how dangerous it was for even the high priest in the old tabernacle to, to enter the holy of holies. How is it that we can enter the holy places? How is it that we can enter God's presence? We're able to enter because Christ has done the work of a priest. He has offered Himself to satisfy the wrath of the Father the wrath that was due to us so that we are then free to enter. And, and so just as it is not dangerous for Jesus to be enter in, in the Holy of Holies, so also there is no danger for us because of Jesus' sacrifice. God's, God's wrath has been satisfied. That's what atonement is. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that because of our union with Jesus, our being connected to Him by faith, Even now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So Jesus' work not only only satisfied God's wrath, but satisfied it to such an extent that we too are able to enter the Holy of Holies with Christ and enjoy the Father. So Jesus, He is sitting in the real tent. He has offered a real wrath-satisfying offering such that We are able to enter with Him. Third, the author would have us to know that Jesus' ministry is incompatible with the merely earthly shadow. His ministry is incompatible with the merely earthly shadow. Look with me now at verse 4. Now, if He were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now this is the second place in this short passage where the author draws a distinction between Jesus and the the Levites. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, he noted that Jesus serves in the true tent, indicating that where the Levites served was something less than the true tent. And now he's showing that Jesus' ministry Jesus' ministry is incompatible with the earthly tent, the place where the Levites served. It's interesting how he makes this point. He says, if he were on earth, if Jesus were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all. And it's not because the job was already filled. He's saying that we're talking about two different ministries. And not just different, but one is dependent upon the other in a crucial way. Now, note that the earthly priests served what the author calls a copy and shadow. What do those words imply to us? Well, the word, the word copy assumes that there's an original. And what he's saying is that the earthly tabernacle where the Levites served is not that original. It's a copy of the original. The word shadow assumes something very similar. It assumes that there's a substance casting that shadow. In the earthly tabernacle where the Levites served, it was not the substance. It was the shadow. In other words, earthly priests, they don't serve the original, real tabernacle. They serve a representation, a copy and shadow of heavenly things, he writes. And by using that phrase, heavenly things, he's, he's turning our attention back to verse 1. You can look verse 1 again, you see that same word, heavens. This is where Jesus serves. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven where He serves in the true tent. The place where the Levites serve is, is a copy and shadow of where Jesus serves. And now it's becoming much clearer what the author meant by the true tent. He didn't mean true as opposed to false, but he meant original as opposed to the copy. The substance as opposed to the shadow. The real as opposed to the replica. And so this this earthly copy and shadow, it exists in accordance with the law of Moses. Moses was told in the law to make the, the earthly copy the shadow to make it according to the pattern that he was shown on the mountain. Now that's in Exodus chapter 25 verse 40 if you want if you want to take a look at that later. But that pattern that he was shown was a revelation of the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus serves even now. So the law of Moses provided for us, listen to this. The law of Moses when, when we read the Old Testament, we want to think this way. When we're when we're going through Leviticus, Numbers, the, 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 the instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus through, through Deuteronomy and, and, and into Ezekiel. We want, to, we want to think of that tabernacle in the Old Testament as a shadow ministry. It's a shadow ministry. You've got shadow priests, which means that they, they represent something greater than themselves. Shadow priests offering shadow sacrifices representing something greater, at a shadow tent, representing something greater. There there is no substance, there is nothing casting a shadow in the shadow ministry. It is the shadow. 
There's nothing salvific that took place in the old in the old covenant tabernacle. No one was saved there. All of these things in the shadow ministry they testify to the existence of the substance casting the shadow. And what's casting the shadow is the heavenly priest offering himself such that he now sits in the real tent. If Jesus was on earth, He wouldn't be a priest. Why? Because the earthly system is a shadow system and Jesus is all substance. He casts the shadow. He can't be the shadow. Jesus is the real thing. He can't can't function as a replica of Himself. And so the author is saying that this is what what would, would happen if you were expecting Jesus to serve here. Or even worse, if you're expecting to substitute something for Him. Remember why the author is writing all of this. He has recognized among among the church around him the trouble and turmoil that goes along with following Jesus. His original readers, they were tempted to trade Jesus in for this old system. Some some of them were, were mistakenly thinking, okay, Jesus, priest, Levites, priest, they do the same thing. So we'll, we'll just go with the one that causes us less trouble in this life. And the author is saying, they aren't the same thing. They, they don't do the same thing. They are shadows. Jesus is the only real thing. He's the substance. And if you exchange Him for them, you're trading in the substance for the shadow. The real thing for a lifeless copy. To go to any pseudo-savior is to expect a shadow to function like a substance. It's, it's like expecting the shadow of the rock to found your house. It's like expecting the shadow of your car to bear up your weight at velocity to another location. Shadows, copies, replicas, They exist to testify to the existence of the substance, the original, the real thing. And that's all they do. That's all they do. They just give evidence of something else. Listen to this. When when people set Jesus aside, they don't just set Jesus aside, but by necessity they replace Him with something else. These Jewish Christians among the original readership, they weren't tempted to just walk away from Jesus into religious nothingness. The the human mind and heart can't help but feel and think, I need fixing. I've, I've got a problem that's down deep inside of me. I've got problems and I'm a problem. That, that's basic humanity and its fallenness. These recipients knew they had a problem which was estrangement from God. So they, they, they weren't just getting rid of Jesus, but rather they were, they were tempted to replace Him with something else purported to save their big problem. And while all people, certainly people in, in, in our context, don't go to the Old Testament infrastructure to deal with their big problem, they do look somewhere else. They look for another replacement even if only to deify their own reason and come up with their own path. Some even find justification 
to go deeper into sin to make them feel better in their sinful misery. Sin is the, the quintessential pseudo-savior. It's one that, that every one of us fall for from time to time. But does sin, the pseudo-savior, does it fix the problem? No, it's like fighting fire with gasoline. It only intensifies everything. The, the, the fallen human soul, it, it cries, I need saving. Though I may not even know what from. And, and, and in that, man comes up with manifold alternatives to address his, his misery. He is creating and turning to pseudo-saviors. Things that at their best can only picture a solution. So, so the, 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 the message here that the, the author of Hebrews is bringing to us is don't sell Christ in order to buy a shadow, a copy, something of no substance which will leave you dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't be a fool. All this brings us finally to, to this. His ministry is more excellent. His ministry is more excellent. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus wouldn't be an earthly priest because He has a more excellent ministry. His ministry is more excellent because He's the mediator of a better covenant. He's the mediator of a better covenant. We'll, we'll see much more next time, Lord willing, how the new covenant is better than the old. But, but here, here's just a taste, just a handful of things. The, the old covenant under the law of Moses was inaugurated by the sprinkling of blood of animals which cannot remove sin. The new covenant was inaugurated, inaugurated with the blood of Christ able to wash us clean. This is a better covenant. The author has, has made much already of the weakness of the Levitical priests. They were, they were men who needed to offer sacrifices for themselves because of their own sin. Jesus, who had no sin, rather than offering a sacrifice for Himself, offered Himself as a sacrifice for others. And th th this, is a, this is a better covenant. According to Hebrews 7.19, the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. That is, the law could not fit a person to enter God's presence. It, it, it did not atone for sin. It did not cleanse the conscience. did not remove wrath. Why, why didn't the law do all those things? For, for the same reason that your shadow doesn't have a checking account. It's a shadow. The, the, the law merely provided a picture, a dim forecast of what was to come. The new covenant provides true forgiveness of sin on the basis of a sufficient sacrifice offered by a sinless priest. It's a better covenant. It's a better covenant enacted on better promises. It's enacted on better promises. The old covenant promised mainly this. 
life for obedience and death for disobedience. And the law made this promise to people with stone hearts bent on rebellion against God. So which, which way did they go? Well, they just went with the disobedience and death. The law, therefore, it simply exposed the depth of rebellion of the human heart. No, no matter what kind of, of reward the law promised or retribution it threatened, it could not move the dead to act like the living. Because they were dead, dead in their trespasses and sins. And, and again, this is the great problem of humanity. Deadness in sin, which is separation from God. But the new covenant does what? The new covenant gives life. It gives fellowship with God on the basis of the obedience of another, Jesus. The law of Moses gave us a shadow ministry. It demonstrated our problem and pictured the solution. The new covenant delivers the substance. Again, there are so many copies out there. The earthly tabernacle, it provided just one. Copies in our secular age, they they aren't self-consciously mimicking Jesus, but they promise to address our biggest problem which is that we can't help but malfunction in this world where we're separated from God. In that way, they are copies. They are pseudo-saviors. And they cannot save. We have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Don't get taken by a copy. Cling to the real thing. To whatever extent you feel yourself being pulled by these copies. To that extent and all the more, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make it your your daily, your hourly habit to rehearse the things of the gospel. Remind yourself what it is that we have, we currently have what was promised. We have the substance and not the shadows. And resist the temptation to discard the substance for shadows and copies which will leave us dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, likely there are some among us who perhaps are hearing some of these things for the very first time. Let me just underscore to you the tremendous predicament that is yours even this morning. That is because of your, your, your natural inborn rebellion against God, you stand as His enemy, His sworn enemy under His wrath. And there is nothing that you can do to save yourself from that wrath. There is no pseudo-savior that is going to do the tiniest thing to remove enmity from between you and God. There is one solution that God has provided, and He provided that solution when He gave His own Son to be the sacrifice that would, sa- that would satisfy the wrath that you have earned by your sin, that I have earned by my sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross for that sin, 
Three days later, he was raised from the dead, proving that that sacrifice was sufficient. And the only hope that you have this morning is to turn from your sin, surrender to King Jesus in faith, giving everything to Him, recognizing He is the only real thing. Consider that as we spend a few moments in silent reflection in these coming moments. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Scriptures. We thank You for their clarity. We thank You for their repetitive nature, how You have inspired the same things to be put in front of us over and over again, reminding us how quick we are to forget, how quick we are to turn to shadows when we have the substance by faith. Father, I pray for those who have truly followed Jesus this morning, that they would not fall to fake copies, things of this world, things of their own design, to to assist them with the difficulties of this life. Father, let them look to Jesus. Jesus, who is sitting in your presence even now and by whose name we are able to even converse with you. We have that, Jesus. Grant us by your Spirit to trust him more and more all the time. Lord, those among us who have never followed Jesus and and who as it stands are even this moment dead in their trespasses and sins, I pray, Father, that you would Grant them to disavow any allegiance to a false Savior out there. Their own reason, another religion, society's answers to human problems, all of those things, Father. Grant them to see that none of them will save them from the wrath to come. None of them will save them from their own rebellious hearts. Only Jesus can do that. And Would you please move them to repent of their sin and to trust in the real thing, Jesus? Grant them life in Him. We pray, Father, that in the coming moments as we are silent before You, that Your Holy Spirit would be active in each of our hearts, moving us to see what You would have us to do with these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.